Welcome to Salem Alliance Church. For more information about this podcast and other resources, please visit us at salemalliance.org. This week's message is by Steve Fowler. Hey, uh, we're in a series called Real Faith. Uh, Brian and Jennifer have done a great job uh, getting us launched and going in this series. And if you want to go to 1 John chapter 2, that's where we're going to continue today. Um, if you didn't bring a Bible, that's okay. There's, a, there's one in the pew rack in front of you. It should be. Go to page 1032. You'll find right where you're supposed to be. And if you're not used to kind of finding your way through a Bible, uh, you get to a page there, you'll see two columns. Uh, you'll see big numbers, little numbers. That's like little addresses. The big number is the chapter. Little number is the verse. So if I say we're going to 1 John chapter 2, verse 18, you can just sort of find your way there like a pro. Uh, you'll be good. So um, we're, we're going to be reading that in a second. Uh, you're, you're likely aware that in a lot of arenas in life that there are people whose job it is to show up and do inspections or examinations or audits. Uh, this is pretty common. I mean, the IRS may surprise you with uh, saying they want to audit your taxes. Um, uh, your teacher at school may surprise you with a pop quiz one day. Uh, a, a military officer might surprise the barracks by an inspection. And, and we, we realize this happens in a lot of different ways. And uh, it also happens in the food industry. There are health inspectors who show up to restaurants and they inspect them to make sure that they reach the, the, reach the standards that you know, restaurants are supposed to, to meet. And we're grateful for that. And most times... Restaurants pass with flying colors. And in, in a few, few times, restaurants have one of those embarrassing moments, or you might even call it a disgusting moment. Uh, consider the Chinese restaurant that, by the way, is not in Salem. A Chinese restaurant who a health inspector showed up one day. It was their job to surprise and kind of check in on them. Um, and did the whole inspection, and everything looked good. The kitchen and, and the food storage and... Um, as they were in the main dining area, they noticed that there was some stuff dripping from the ceiling tiles. So they got a ladder, flashlight, climbed the ladder, kind of lifted the ceiling tile, shined shine the flashlight up there, and they see eyes staring back at them. And it, it's chickens. The, the owners are raising chickens in the ceilings and using those chickens to prepare the food. The problem is, is what's dripping through the ceiling tiles is, yeah, you, you know, um, a French restaurant in the U.S., it's trying to recreate this 18th century sort of French fortress thing. It's a stonework, uh, these doorless entries, and a health inspector shows up, not happy that there's these doorless entries, uh, gets into the kitchen and not happy that there's not a mosquito zapper in there. And, um, but the owner's like, oh, come on, man, I'm trying, I'm trying to recreate this ambiance. And ah, the health inspector gives him a pass and says, well, let me just check your food storage area. So they walk out back of the restaurant, and there's this building outside, another doorless entry, and as they walk into this food storage area, um, they, they see all this fresh baked bread that's been delivered by a local bakery, and there is a cow in there licking it. <laughs> yeah, a, a farmer had some cows get loose, one found its way into the back storeroom. Awesome. Uh, one last one, because this is really fun. Uh, uh, Australia. Australia, there's, uh, there's people in, the, in this little community that are complaining about this little fish and chips place, that the food is kind of just grotty, and, it's, and, there, and there's a hair in the fish and the chips, and it's, people are complaining, so health inspector shows up. The owner of the, of the little fish and chips uh, restaurant uh, greets the health inspector, and he's barefoot, 
He's wearing a pair of shorts, and he's got a tank top on. He's got little sweat patches attached to his armpits. And he's incredibly hairy. Not just like legs and arms, but neck and back. And the guy is taken back a little bit. And so he, he says to Mr. Weirwolf, hey, um, you're kind of going around here a little bit. That means so direct. You know, if you wore more clothing, uh, you would protect yourself from the oil, the hot oil in the deep fryer. And, um, you know, trying to say that we could cover all that hair up. And, um, and he looks at the deep fryer and sees that it looks nasty. So immediately, the health inspector orders this guy to drain the deep fryer. And as the deep fryer is drained, what they discover in the bottom of the deep fryer is a deep fried cat. And not missing a beat, the owner says, oh, that's where Fluffy went. <laughs> he had a rodent issue and got this cat, and it disappeared one night, and he thought it had run away, but apparently it somehow found its way into the, the oil and, and drowned, and the hair and the grotty food that people have been eating were not, well, I think you get the idea, right? You got the idea. I know I have sufficiently ruined your lunch plans, but remember these stories Outside of Salem, outside of Salem, look, we're very grateful that there are people whose job it is to hold restaurants accountable or to make sure that what, you know, maybe it's a construction site or maybe whatever, that making sure that, 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 that expectations are being met. Friends, we're in First John chapter 2, and what we're going to see here is that John is going to switch gears a little bit, and he's going to talk about the return of Jesus. He's going he's gonna to get to this point that one day there will be a grand inspection. One day there's going to be a grand audit of our lives. We're pretty comfortable with other people being examined and inspected. Uh, but we get, sometimes our heart begins to beat a little bit faster when we, we're the ones being examined. Now, Paul captures this moment uh, that, that, that every one of us will have to give an account for our lives. For those who don't know Jesus, this is a terrifying moment. For those of us who do know Jesus... This is not a moment of condemnation because there is no condemnation for anyone who's in Christ Jesus. But I think you capture the reason why this happens in this passage. Uh, Paul writes, for no one can lay any foundation other than the one we already have, Jesus Christ. Anyone who builds on that foundation may use a variety of materials, gold, silver, jewels, wood, hay, or straw. But on the judgment day, fire will reveal what kind of work each builder has done. The fire will show if a person's work has any value. If the work survives, that builder will receive a reward. But if the work is burned up, the builder will suffer great loss. The builder will be saved, but like someone barely escaping through a wall of flames. What Paul is getting at is, friends, one day there will be a grand audit. One day the ceiling tiles will be lifted the back storeroom will be inspected. The deep fryer will be drained. And Jesus is going to examine our lives. And it's, again, it's not for purpose of condemnation. He actually wants to congratulate you. He actually longs to reward you. And our work will be tested. And for many people, it will be a day of reward. But for some, it will be a day of regret. And John is getting to this. 1 John chapter 2, verse 28. He says, and now, dear children... Remain in fellowship with Christ so that when he returns, you will be full of courage 
and not shrink back from him in shame. So, the question that rises is, how do I live into this reality of the return of Christ in such a way that I don't shrink back in shame, but actually I can stand with some courage knowing that I've been faithful? And that's exactly where John goes in chapter 2. So if you've got your Bibles there, I want to work my way through chapter 2 in the beginning of chapter 3 and answer this question. In light of his grand audit that's coming, when the ceiling towers are lifted and the back storm is inspected and the deep fires drained, in light of that, people of real faith, uh, the, the people who, who have authentic faith, live into this reality. Now John, he's writing to a church where some people have been, been kind of pulling away and, and leaving the faith, and there's this heresy called Gnosticism um, that is, uh, it, it, that's around, and Brian talked about this in week one. Gnosticism at its core had a lot of different beliefs, but one of the beliefs was that if anything has physical matter attached to it, it's evil. Spirit is good. Anything physical, that, that, that's bad. So the idea of God being spirit taking on human flesh, for someone who's a Gnostic, they would say, well, Jesus can't be the Messiah. Because it's this physical matter. And so some have fallen into this false teaching and they're departing the church. Uh, verses 15 through 17 talk about the departure. It's a departure from the love of the Father for the love of the world. A departure uh, from the love of the church to the love of self. A little bit farther in the chapter, see, a departure from the love of truth to embracing falsehood. And so John is going to answer this question of how we practically can live into this reality and express real faith as we wait for Jesus to return, that he might congratulate us. So let me begin reading in verse 18. Dear children, last hour is here. You have heard that the Antichrist is coming, and already many such Antichrists have appeared. From this we know that the last hour has come. These people left our churches, but they never really belonged with us. Otherwise, they would have stayed with us. When they left, it proved that they did not belong with us. But you are not like that. For the Holy One has given you his spirit. And all of you know the truth. So, I'm writing to you, not because you don't know the truth, but because you know the difference between truth and lies. And who is a liar? Anyone who says that Jesus is not the Christ... Anyone who denies the Father and the Son is an antichrist. Anyone who denies the Son doesn't have the Father either. But anyone who acknowledges the Son has the Father also. So you must remain faithful to what you have been taught from the beginning. If you do, you will remain in fellowship with the Son and with the Father. And in this fellowship, we enjoy the eternal life he promised us. I'm writing these things to warn you about those who want to lead you astray. Stop right there. How do we live into this reality? How do we express real faith in light of the reality of the return of Christ? And John gets right to it, and the first thing he says is, look, if you, want, if you want to stay faithful to the end, you have to consider the possibility that you can be led away from Jesus. That there are actually, there's, there's potential circumstances, maybe suffering, maybe experiences that would would cause you to lean away from Jesus. There may be, in this case, it's people, that there are people who are actually leading others away from Jesus. And sometimes in our case, it could be intentionally or unintentionally. This, this leading, uh, leading away. Uh, a lot of years ago, one of my daughters who had just recently uh, graduated from high school um, was making a trip to, to see a friend that she had, uh, had 
made in, in Hong Kong back in the day. And so uh, she was traveling to Toronto. She packed her bags, got on a plane, flew to Toronto, arrived there, got the plane, went to baggage claim to, to, to get her bag, got her bag, and was walking out to catch a cab, a taxi, so that she could be taken to her friend's house. Um, as she walks out, there's a really nice car. There's a, there's a taxi driver standing there, and he says, you need a taxi? And she says, yeah. So he grabs her bags, put it, put it in the trunk, gets the address from her. She sits uh, in the back seat of, of the cab, and they're driving down the freeway. And as they're driving down the freeway, uh, my daughter all of a sudden sees a bunch of flashing lights. There's cop cars all around this car. There's, there's a couple behind, there's one on the left, and they're sort of kind of pushing the car over to the side of the freeway. And, um, and my, my daughter has no idea what's going on, but it turns out that she has gotten into a car that is not a taxi. And by the way, when you hear your, your kids tell you these stories, you're, you know, that's when you get this pit in your stomach as a parent, and you thank Jesus for protecting your kids. Uh, the cops arrest the guy, take her out of that car, and you know, safely escort her to uh, a real taxi. Now, now friends, she had... No, no, no understanding at that point in time that there actually are people out there who, who would take advantage of people in this way. And, and when it comes to our spiritual lives, we have to understand that there is this possibility that there are those who, who may want to lead you astray, intentionally, unintentionally. You have to consider that possibility, otherwise you'll find yourself just like these, these people in this early church who have who've disconnected and who have, who have wandered from their faith in Jesus. So if we're going to live into this reality, we just need to, at the very beginning, understand we, we could get led away, which means we need to ask ourselves a question. Are the people that I spend time with, are, are they encouraging me towards Jesus, or am I drifting away from Jesus? Are the, are the friends, and I'm not just talking about Christian friends because I hope you have non-Christian friends, but in, the, in those circles, are you the influencer or are you being influenced? Because sometimes very good, well-meaning friendships can contribute to this pulling away, getting in the wrong car, so to speak, and being led away from Jesus. Is what you give your time to, the things you think about, is what you watch leading you towards a vibrant relationship with Jesus? Or could it be it's taking you away from that vibrant relationship? That's where John begins. That's how people with real faith live into the reality of the return of Christ. They just consider the possibility that they, they could be led away. There are people who could influence them away from Jesus. Uh, second way he answers this question, uh, I'll, I'll read verse 19 again because it applies, and then I'll jump down to verse 27. Uh, John writes, these people left our churches, but they never really belonged with us. Otherwise, they would have stayed with us. When they left, it proved that they did not belong with us. Verse 27. But you have received the Holy Spirit, and he lives within you. So you don't, know, you don't need anyone to teach you what is true, for the Spirit teaches you everything you need to know, and what he teaches is true. It's not a lie. So just as he has taught you, remain in fellowship with Christ. And now, dear children, remain in fellowship with Christ so that when he returns, you will be full of courage and not shrink back from him in shame. How does someone live into the reality expressing real faith, expecting the return of Christ? 
they consider the possibility that they could be distracted, led away. The second thing they do is they stay connected to their spiritual family and they stay connected to Jesus. In this early church, because of this, this teaching that was brought in, some people began to disconnect from their spiritual family. And in so, what it led to was a disconnect with their friendship with Jesus. And, um, and, and it impacted. In fact, he goes on to say that like, apparently they, they never really belonged to us. This, this real faith was expressed by a consistent connection to your spiritual family. Now, interesting thing. You know, when I was a kid, um, and um, my parents were raising me, you know, anytime the church doors were open, we were at church. You know, Wednesday, Friday night, you know, Sunday, Sunday night. Uh, and it wasn't because my parents believed that, boy, if you really want to please God, you got to go to church. It wasn't some legalistic kind of behavioral pattern to try and make God happy with you. Because the reality is, is that if you're in Christ, he is already delighted in you. He's pleased in you. You don't have to perform for him. All the performance that was necessary for God the Father to be pleased with you was done on the cross by Jesus. But my parents had this very sort of just consistent connection with their, large, with their church, their, their, their larger spiritual family. And, um, and, and that was my reality growing up. And I know that wasn't your reality. For, for, for many of you, it wasn't your reality growing up. But some of you, I think you can identify with that. Now, uh, there's been this sort of this trajectory of change in this connection to spiritual family. Uh, Christianity Today, which is a Christian periodical, did, a, did a, a survey some 30 years ago and talked about how uh, 30 years ago, uh, on an average weekend, that people were in church three out of four weekends. But they did a recent survey, sort of comparing, contrasting, and th- the trajectory has changed. Now it's like people, uh, people are in church, uh, Christians are in church 1.2 weekends uh, a month. Now, I don't know where the point two comes from. I mean, you leave when the sermon starts or, or what. I don't know. But it's averages. Okay, it's averages. Now, what's the point here? The point is that tr- the trajectory has been uh, less connection with the larger spiritual family, there may be, some, there may be connection with, with smaller spiritual family, but it, there's less connection with the larger spiritual family. And, and I know it can sound very self-serving for a pastor to talk about this, but here's the good news. You're here, okay? So this is not about guilting or condemning or anything like that. It's just this reality. Something atrophies in our souls when we don't maintain a connection with our spiritual families. We need each other. There's something collectively. When we stand and we pray for healing for one another, there's something collectively that we experience that encourages us. There's something about singing together that you just can't recreate on your own. And again, this is not about legalism. This is just about nourishing your soul, understanding that when you disconnect from your spiritual family, your soul takes a hit. And that impacts your relationship with Jesus as well. And so John is saying, look, stay connected, remain in him, abide in him, nurture that friendship with him, go deep with Jesus. Going deep with Jesus is not about the acquisition of more information. It's not about saying, I I, got to know more. We want to know God's word. That's important. We want to have a deep understanding of God's word. But we have a deep understanding of God's word and having a deep connection with the spiritual family we're a part of for the purpose of having a deep relationship with our king. And, by the way, Laurel made an announcement before the service started that there's this conference we do called Recognizing God's Voice. 
If you're wanting to learn how to deepen that friendship, that'd be a fantastic conference to go to. Be a great way to to learn and and understand how God might speak to us. But friends, if if we're going to live into the reality of the second coming of Christ, expressing real faith, we've got to consider the possibility that we could be led astray, could be distracted. We also need to understand that we need to keep a strong connection to spiritual family and to Jesus. And and thirdly, uh, John picks this up in chapter 3, verse 1. He says, see how very much our Father loves us. For he calls us his children, and that is what we are. But the people who belong to this world don't recognize that we are God's children because they don't know him. Dear friends, we are already God's children, but he has not yet shown us what we will be like when Christ appears. But we do know that we will be like him, for we will see him as he really is. And all who have this eager expectation will keep themselves pure just as he is pure. There's going to be a grand audit, ceiling tiles lifted, back storerooms inspected, deep fryer vats drained. Jesus is looking not to condemn, not to shame. He's looking to congratulate. And one of the ways that we can live into the reality of his return is simply to remember whose you are. You are are a child of God. You are his son. You are his daughter. And he looks at you and he delights in you and says, that's my boy, that's my girl. And what he goes on to say is in this reality, so preserve yourself for the one who is pure. John is intentionally using marriage covenant language here. He's like a bride or a bridegroom would preserve themselves for their spouse or future spouse on the wedding day. He's saying, you preserve yourself for the one who is pure, who is coming. Remember who you belong to. Remember whose you are. Now, over 33 years ago, uh, Trina and I got married. And on that wedding day, we exchanged vows and we exchanged rings. And, um, and the rings that we, this is the same ring that, that Trina gave me three, 33 years ago. And my, my ring is a reminder to me, it's symbolic, a symbolic reminder to me that I belong to somebody else. And the ring that Trina wears reminds her that she belongs to me, that we're married. It also, when I go out in public, it, it's a declaration to everyone around me that, that, that I belong to someone. And, um, and so we, we, we exchanged those rings knowing that you know, full well. And we not only said vows, we actually had some conversations about what are some practical things that we could do to preserve uh, ourselves for one another in marriage for the long haul. And so we, we made some decisions that you wouldn't be surprised by. And we made some decisions that you scratch your head over like, well, what's that about? And things like we made a decision that we would never dance with anyone other than our spouse. Now, that's a really easy vow to keep because we don't dance, and, um, and we stink at it. <laughs> and it is no statement about the sin of dancing. Maybe some of you grew up hearing that. Now, dancing is totally fine. This is just something that, that Trina and I decided on, that, yeah, we're, this is something we're only going to, we're just going to reserve that for each other, uh, for just reminding us of who, who we belong to. Now, interestingly enough, some years ago, we were doing a spiritual retreat in the Middle East, and there was uh, this is night, this is game night, 
And in the game, there's all this random stuff happening. And uh, the person who was playing the game had to find somebody to dance with. So this guy comes running over. This international worker comes running over and grabs Trina's arm and pulls her out onto the dance floor and starts dancing with her. And there's this, this missionary, this international worker that causes my wife to break her promise to me. And, um, and, and that person was Luke Lay, so we hired to run Broadway Coffee House. Careful, him. Uh, Luke's a great guy. It was one of those moments where, like, that was kind of funny and unexpected. Um, and, and it's just kind of a silly thing that Trina and I decided, you know, I, that's just what we're, we're going to do. I was talking to a guy after one of the services today. He, he rides a motorcycle, and he and his wife have made the decision that no one else will be on the back of the motorcycle except their spouse. That, just their personal thing, okay? You're not going to find that in the pages of Scripture. That, that's just someone saying, I want to remember whose I am. This is what John is saying to us. Friends, people of real faith who live into the reality of the return of Christ, remember whose they are, and they take practical steps to preserve themselves for the one who is pure. They may have different convictions than you, but the intent is, the motivation is that when Jesus returns, they would not shrink back in shame, but they could stand in full courage knowing that there is a Jesus, not the idea of Jesus, the person Jesus, who will congratulate and reward. Last answer to the question that John is posing of how do we live into this reality in light of the return of Christ. Chapter three, verse four. Everyone who sins is breaking God's law. For all sin is contrary to the law of God. And you know that Jesus came to take away our sins and there is no sin in him. Anyone who continues to live in him will not sin. But anyone who keeps on sinning does not know him or understand who he is. Dear children, don't let anyone deceive you about this. When people do what is right, it shows that they are righteous, even as Christ is righteous. But when people keep on sinning, it shows that they belong to the devil who has been sinning since the beginning. But the Son of God came to destroy the works of the devil. Those who have been born into God's family do not make a practice of sinning because God's life is in them. So they can't keep on sinning because they are children of God. So now we can tell who are children of God and who are children of the devil. Anyone who does not live righteously and does not love other believers does not belong to God. That's pretty tough. I mean, anyone who keeps on sinning, they're child of the devil. I mean, what, what is John getting at here? Is he saying that, man, if I make a mistake, I'm out? Is, is he saying that, you know, if, if, if I miss the mark or if I kind of cross the line, what, what's he getting at here? What he's getting at is, you know, you, you lived this life of who you were before you even heard about Jesus, and, and there were some things you were engaged in that, that, uh, that grieved him, and then you met Jesus. And he saved you, and he has called you his child. And what John is saying is that, look, if you've had this experience of meeting Jesus and becoming a child of God, why would you keep on living the way you lived before him, before you met him? I mean, it's sort of like saying, well, yeah, I want Jesus to save me in hell, but I'm going to keep living like hell. Beaver fans. Let me just talk about beaver fans for a second. <laughs> Stick with me. Stay with me. 
There's something you need to know about beaver fans. Beaver fans are very, very principled. Beaver fans have very strong core convictions. And one of those convictions that is expressed is that it is completely unthinkable for a beaver fan in any situation, for any circumstance, to cheer on the ducks. <laughs> it just doesn't make sense. How You can't be a true beaver fan and root for the ducks. It's unthinkable. Now, one day, the fullness of the kingdom of God will invade their hearts and minds, and they'll understand that you're supposed to love your enemies. But until that day, the reality is that beaver fans have this core conviction. It's unthinkable. Those two don't go together. You can't be a beaver fan and root for the ducks. You are not a Beaver fan. <laughs> so, this is what John's saying. You, you can't call yourself a child of God and live into the same sinful patterns that you lived into before you met Jesus. What he's getting at is living a repentant lifestyle. Change of mind. I'm thinking about this behavior or these thoughts or these attitudes in a new light, change of mind which leads to a change of heart or new affections, new desires that results in living differently. It's not about never ever making a mistake again. It's about pursuing a life of repentance and demonstrating the fruit of repentance. And what, Paul, what John is getting after here is this idea that I, it doesn't matter, I'm in. I can excuse my behavior. There's a lack of desire for transformation. Now, some of you know the name A.W. Tozer. Tozer was considered a prophet in his time, uh, a, a strong writer in our, in our movement, a prophetic voice. He says on this subject, a notable heresy has come into being throughout our evangelical Christian circles. The widely accepted concept that we humans can choose to accept Christ only because we need him as Savior and that we have the right to postpone our obedience to him as Lord as long as we want to. Dallas Willard, a Christian philosopher, kind of adds to this. He says, this heresy has created the impression that it is quite reasonable to be a vampire Christian. One, in effect, says to Jesus, I'd like a little of your blood, please, but I don't care to be your student or have your character. In fact, won't you just excuse me while I get on with my life and I'll see you in heaven? But... Can we really imagine that this is an approach that Jesus finds acceptable? Both Willard and Tozer, are, they're echoing the voice of John here in this epistle and saying, look, there's going to be a grand audit one day. The ceiling tiles are going to be lifted, the back storeroom's inspected, the deep fryer drained, and Jesus is going to examine our lives. Not for the purpose of condemnation. He longs to congratulate you but for some, it will be a day of regret. But we can live into this reality, expressing real faith in such a way that we understand. You know, you can get distracted and, and led astray, that we do need to stay connected to spiritual family and to Jesus. We can remember whose we are and preserve ourselves for him. And we can pursue this repentant lifestyle, knowing that by the power of the Spirit, transformation can come to our lives. So, let me land the plane a bit here. 
pose a couple questions to you. Because we don't want to just be hearers of the word. We want to be doers, right? Here's a question for us to process. If Jesus were to return this next week, what would be your predominant emotion? Could be joy. Could be indifference. Maybe it's fear. Anxiety. What? Try and, try and nail an emotion. Maybe it's relief. What, what's the emotion? And then peel back the layers and ask yourself, why that emotion? Why joy? Where, does that, where, where, where might that lead you? Why indifference? Why fear? What would be the predominant emotion that you sense if Jesus were to return later this afternoon or sometime next week? It'd be a great way to think about the things we've been talking about today. A second question. How could you keep the reality of the imminent return of Jesus? And what we mean by that is that it, that it could happen at any moment. How could you keep the reality of the imminent return of Jesus in the forefront of your mind? What are some very practical things that you could do to remind you that we have a king who's going to return? Sticky note on the mirror, something in your car, something that just kind of keeps us in the forefront of your mind. Because friends, people of real faith understand that one day there'll be a grand audit. Our lives will be inspected not for the purpose of condemnation, but for the purpose of congratulation and reward. And he longs to recognize the work, the service, the love that you have expressed and say, well done. Let's pray that in together. Let's pray. Let's just pause a little bit and process a few things. And Jesus, what, what do you want us to know about you today? We've prayed together, we've sung together, we've listened together. What's something that you want us to know about who you are? Maybe it's merciful, compassionate, just. And Jesus, what are you saying to us today? What are you calling us to? Maybe it's laying something down. Maybe it's, maybe it's an invitation to begin a friendship with him. A challenge for mid-course correction. What are you saying, Jesus? And today, Lord, we again pray that prayer found at the very end of the Bible. Even so, come, Lord Jesus, come. Amen. Salem Alliance Church is a community of Jesus followers located in downtown Salem, Oregon. And we are passionate about our city being a city at peace with God. 
If you have a request that we could pray for, please email us at prayers at salemalliance.org. You can view today's entire service online at livestream.com backslash Salem Alliance.